Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs. Rabbi Sachs earned his master's from Yeshiva University's Bernard Revel Graduate School and received rabbinic ordination from Yeshiva University as well. Rabbi Sachs is an extremely popular educator, lecturer, and writer. Together with Rabbi Chaim Bravender, Rabbi Sachs created Atid, the Academy for Torah Initiatives and Directions in Jewish Education. Rabbi Sachs is also the editor-in-chief of Tradition, the highly regarded journal of Orthodox Jewish thought published by the Rabbinical Council of America. Additionally, Rabbi Sachs serves as the director of research at the Agnon House in Jerusalem. And today, appropriately, we will be discussing the life and writings of Nobel laureate Shai Agnon. Thank you, Rabbi Sachs, for joining us today. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, Ari, and thanks for your work at uh, Sparks of History. Thank you. Just to get started, a little bit about your background and how you became interested in Shai Agnon. Oh, well, that's a, a, a long and probably less interesting story for our listeners, uh, which I've told many times. And the interesting thing is that it never comes out uh, the same way twice. But the, the, short, the short answer is that uh, I came in Aliyah in the early mid-90s. And uh, I had grown up in suburban New Jersey in a home that was not uh, Jewishly observant, although it was uh, obviously culturally Jewishly connected. And in my kind of uh, journey towards uh, Jewish observance, among the very many things that I had encountered in uh, Jewish life and Jewish learning and Jewish literature were the writings of Shai Agnon in, in translation, obviously. I could not have then read him in the original Hebrew. And it, uh, it enchanted me, what he, was, what he was writing in the few stories that were then available in, in translation. And when I came on Aliyah in uh, 94, I almost accidentally uh, found myself in possession of a, a particular volume of his in Hebrew, and I gave it a try uh, to read, but uh, like many Olim Hadashim, uh, uh, new arrivals here in the in the Hebrew state, my Hebrew was not in a state which I could have could have uh, made my way through Agnon. But over time, it improved, and I continued to read. And uh, a number of years ago, I had this uh, kind of strange, uh, serendipitous uh, episode where I had realized I had I had read quite a bit of Agnon's collected writings, but in a very dilettantish uh, way. And I, I, I had the idea that you could do the whole thing. You could read the whole of uh, Shai Agnon's uh, writings. There are two sets. There are the volumes that were published in his lifetime, which are nine volumes, and then an additional 14 volumes, actually, that were published posthumously. Uh, so I started off with the, the, you know, the, originals, the original set, and it's possible to actually read all of Agnon's writings uh, and to also read the worthwhile commentary that has accrued uh, to it over the years. And uh, I'll make the story even shorter here. At a certain point, I somehow became recognized as someone who had something interesting to say about Agnon's writings. And I started uh, teaching here at the Agnon house. I'm sitting, uh, you know, in the Zoom virtual reality of Agnon's library, which is in the Telpiot neighborhood of, 
of Jerusalem. But I began uh, an involvement here at this institution, which is uh, the, the home in which he lived from 1931 until his death in 1970, and where he wrote, you know, very, very many of his uh, of his prize-winning uh, stories and novels. And at a certain point, I took on a more formal role. And as you mentioned, I'm the director of research here at the Agnon House, and we help uh, both the academic world, scholars, people that are doing uh, academic work from doctoral students through uh, the great professors, uh, as well as uh, as well as everyday readers who have questions about what they what they encounter, students who have to prepare to read Agnon's writings for the matriculation examinations here in the Israeli school system, and people from all around the world, Jewish and non-Jewish, who encounter his writing. Excellent. Thank you. Um, what were the early influences that shaped Agno? This is an interesting question, uh, which uh, Agnon himself was very mysterious about, and he spoke about it in different ways on, on different occasions. Uh, there was one particularly well-known uh, version of it, uh, which he delivered on the stage in Stockholm in 1966 upon receiving his, his Nobel Prize. And he puts up a kind of front that his, uh, his influences were the Bible and rabbinic canon. All these books uh, behind me in his, in his library, you see only one angle of his library, his very, very, very rich, uh, expansive library, which is, of course, principally the, the works of the Jewish canon from the Bible, through the Mishnah, the Midrash, the Talmud, the Rabbinic Codes, medieval Hebrew writing, both halachic writing and philosophical writing, etc., etc., up to Hasidic writing and the modern Hebrew and Yiddish uh, literature that had flourished in the, in the couple of generations before his arrival on the scene as a young author. Uh, there is no doubt that he saw himself as part of the continuity of the Jewish of the Jewish canon, even though he knew perfectly well that being a modern author meant that uh, he was breaking from that code and that and that canon. But he was working from within the canon in that his modern stories, uh, which are you know not necessarily on at least explicitly on religious themes, although very many of them are are engaged intertextually, almost, I'm making air quotes, midrashically with, with, the, with the classical canon, principally, principally with the world of, of Chazal, of the Talmudic uh, sages, and his use of language and his use of references to the, the Talmud um, draws the reader in, in this kind of intertextual engagement, in the same way you'll pardon, you know, the sacrilege of it, as we say, lahavdil, um, in, in the same way that the Midrash is engaging with the Bible, right? It's doing that kind of intertextual work. It's trying to fill in the gaps. If there's, there's something that's left unspoken, you know, in the, in the biblical text, you can be sure that the rabbis hating the vacuum are going to jump into that and try to let us know the story behind the story or the story between the lines that the that the Chumash or the Tanakh didn't let us know. So to a certain degree, Agnon is playing off of that, that style in his own writing. Now, that being said, he devoured 
the classics of the Western literary canon, which he knew either by reading them in translation to Hebrew or Yiddish. You know, those, those types of translations were already available by the end of the 19th, early 20th century when he was you know, doing, his, doing his reading, as well as a world literature which he was able to read in German. Those were the only languages that he had any fluency in. So either German literature in German or world literature translated to German, but principally reading in Hebrew and Yiddish uh, translations. And uh, those authors, of course, were great influences on him. Now, he was a little dodgy about acknowledging those influences. There were times that he would. There are times where it's just obvious that there are, that there are Western writers who are, who are uh, serving as both a template for his work and with whom he's in, in, in dialogue. And there were other times where he denied influence most famously, he uh, he made some outlandish claim that he hardly had hardly read any of Franz Kafka's writings. Um, that comparison was something that he particularly bristled at, because in some of his more modernistic stories, uh, he really is writing in what we call today a, a kind of Kafkaesque tone. But that overlooks the fact that Kafka did not invent that literary genre he just you know perfected it to such a degree that he got to put his name on it and in fact Agnon was writing in that style in some very very early works before he could have known or read uh, Kafka's uh, Kafka's writing so just because two things you know sometimes resemble each other doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that one uh, bore the other you know a person can a person can closely resemble his own father as well as closely resemble his first cousin. But we know that, you know, one is a coincidence and one is an influence. Um, so those were some of the, uh, the influences on his, uh, on his writing. Interested people uh, can, can access Agnon's Nobel Prize speech on the, on the website of the Nobel Prize uh, uh, Committee. Uh, you can read the whole thing in, in translation. You can even hear audio clips of it. And he discusses some of these things. But like every autobiographical comment that he makes, it has to be taken with a grain of salt. Can, can one distinguish between Agnon, the European writer, what he wrote when he was in Europe, and Agnon, the Israel, uh, pre-state Israel, post-state Israel writer? Yeah. That's the interesting thing. The interesting thing with Agnon is that he has these very distinctive uh, genres, but they're not chronological. Agnon had done uh, quite a bit of writing before he arrived in Eretz Yisrael in 1908. As a as a, he was closing in on his on his. Uh, he was 20 years old. He was 20 years old when he first arrives in 1908. And he had written a number of short stories. He had also done some journalistic uh, work, but he had written a number of short stories in Yiddish and in Hebrew. Uh, he'd also done some poetry. I think in time he came to realize that poetry was not his strength, and he, he kind of left that largely aside. Most of the stories that he wrote before he arrives in Jaffa in 1908 he never collects, they're left aside, and only through archival work are we able to access them. He understood that they were the immature writings of, a, of an adolescent. Uh, but then he arrives in, in Jaffa in 1908, 
And he immediately becomes this rising star in the scene of the newly emergent modern Hebrew, Hebrew literature. At that point on, he's only writing in Hebrew. He abandons Yiddish as a form of literary expression. In 1912, he leaves uh, Israel, or the land of Israel, to go to Germany. It's not clear how long he intended to stay. The trip got elongated, uh, principally because of the outbreak of World War uh, One and the inability to travel uh, back. And then he uh, becomes married and he has children and all those types of things that uh, probably many of our listeners abroad are familiar, sometimes, you know, get us stuck outside the land of land of Israel. In 1924, he returns to Jerusalem, where he spends the, the rest of his life. Now, these different, these different centers of gravity in his life, the land of Israel and Jerusalem, principally as depicted in the period of the second Aliyah, that decade before World War I, when he first arrived. Germany, uh, both uh, before, during, and after World War I, although much of the German writing is focused principally in and around World War I, and the ancestral home. He had come from a little town called Buchach, which is in what today is the Western Ukraine, you know, because of these atrocities that are happening in, in the Ukraine. Uh, you know, we're getting a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, questions and, uh, and people are contacting us, um, you know, about, Agnon's uh, old hometown. There's a n- neighborhood or a suburb outside of Kiev called Bucha. So people are, you know, they were in, there were these atrocities that had taken place there uh, earlier in the war. And people were asking us, is this Agnon's? No, no, it's many hundreds of kilometers away. That's a, a town called Bucha. And Agnon was from a town called Buchach, which again was in the Western Ukraine. But when Agnon lived there, it was part of the easternmost reaches of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was a region which was called, a geographic region, which was called Galicia. You know, there are many Galiciana Jews. It, uh, it affects how you like your gefilte fish and, uh, and some other ways that you pronounce uh, Hebrew and Yiddish. Um, so Agda was a Galicianer. Uh, and, uh, but when he lives there at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, it's not part of it's not part of uh, the Russian Empire. It's not part of uh, Poland, which didn't exist as an autonomous nation uh, at that time. It's part of Austro-Hungary. It's controlled from from Vienna in the in the West, and that changes a lot of the nature of the world which which in which he was raised and which he which he depicts. Um, so these different centers, the old world of Galicia, the world of the land of Israel in and around the first Aliyah and Germany during World War I were the different geographical spaces. But throughout his life, he was moving back and forth between them on the page. And there are times even late in life, late in life, he's working on, you know, almost desperately on two major works, what turn out to be his two largest works, a sprawling modernistic novel called Shira, which is set in Jerusalem and the Hebrew University uh, and depicts a whole variety of, of uh, complicated relationships, uh, not the least of which are the, the kind of send-up and satire of the academic politics of the, 
of the university, but principally around this kind of midlife crisis of the of the academic who serves as the as the protagonist of the of the of the novel, Professor Manfred Herbst. And at the same time, he's working on a massive story cycle collection, which was meant to cover 300 years of the history of his hometown, which had been utterly destroyed in in the Holocaust. So he's working in, in two very different modes and very different genres simultaneously. Both of these works were published posthumously in the year or three after, after his death uh, by his daughter, Emunah Yaron, who was his executor and who was responsible for publishing more of his writing, mostly under his instruction and guidance before he died, but publishing it, publishing it all posthumously. So the question of Agnon in the different phases, it's not Agnon over time because there were times that he was moving you know, back and forth across borders, even though, interestingly, he leaves Buchach at around the age of 20. And aside from what I'll call one and a half very brief visits back home later in life, he never goes back. But like so many great authors that are rooted in a specific place, Think James Joyce uh, in, 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 in Dublin. Think uh, Mark Twain on the banks of the Mississippi. Works that were written when the authors were far, far, far away uh, uh, in, in space and in time, but not in soul. You can take the boy out of Buchach, but you can't take the Buchach out of the boy. And he spends his whole life somehow imaginatively trying to recreate something of what was in that world. And that's a feeling that becomes much more intensified after the Shoah, of course, although it's, it's present already before the Holocaust. But after the Shoah and the destruction of Buchach and the destruction of European Jewry, it takes on a, a, almost a kind of moral force that he's trying to reconstruct, not as a historian, as, as a, a writer of fiction, but trying to recreate through the artistic maneuver a world which has been lost. So he's, he's doing all these things simultaneously at different times throughout his life, which you know makes him, I think, makes him a particularly interesting writer. I mean, not just in terms of the focus of his writing, but also the style of his writing. He, he, he begins, like most authors, he begins by writing short stories, and then he aspires to write novels. And then at the same time, he's simultaneously always moving back and forth through the different genres, short stories, long novels, novellas, uh, writing in modernistic tones, writing in a kind of neo-Hasidic tale. And he's doing this throughout his life, this kind of multivaried uh, way of expression, uh, you know, was something that he, that he was always jumping back and forth between. So um, the writing style and the genre that you've discussed now, what makes Agnon linguistically unique for a modern Hebrew writer? You say, I'm sorry, linguistically? Yeah, linguistic. What, what makes it unique as a modern Hebrew? So, re- readers, of Agnon, re- readers of Agnon in Hebrew uh, will note, as many have, that he's writing not in contemporary Hebrew. And that's not just because many of the stories were written in the, in the 20s and 30s. You know, some of them were written well over 100 years ago. He had a very long career 
His, his first piece of published writing, uh, once he arrives in the land of Israel, is in 1908. And he was writing up until, you know, a number of months before his death in 1970. And of course, like I said, you know, for many years afterwards, there were posthumous works coming out. But his writing had a kind of anachronistic or old-fashioned feel, even to his contemporary readers, reading him in the 20s and 30s. As it's not just that we read Agnon today and we say, gee, that's not the Hebrew you hear, you know, on, on an Egged bus. Right? That was true when that particular story might have been written 100 years ago. Because at that time, as modern Hebrew was being reawoken, I say reawoken because it's something of a myth that Hebrew was, was revived. Because in order to revive something, it has to first be dead. Hebrew wasn't dead, but it was kind of in a, you know, in a coma and needed to be reawoken, like, like Sleeping Beauty almost. Hebrew was always the language of scholarship. It was always the language of, of study, prayer. Hebrew was always the second language of at least literate Jews around the world. Uh, but it was not a language with which we were creating a modern literature. It was a language with which we were writing Torah scholarship. It was a language with which we were writing liturgical poetry, piyutim. It was a language in which, uh, you know, a, a, a rabbi in Fez and a rabbi in, in northern France might have communicated with each other if they were sending Shailo to Shavuot back and forth. But it was not a language of modern literature because there was no modern Hebrew Hebrew literature. And there was no idea. I mean, there may have been some kind of vague hope, tikva, but there was no kind of autonomous Jewish world in which we needed a daily language. The daily language was Yiddish or it was Ladino or it was Judeo-Arabic or it was, you know, for, for us, it was uh, for us and our parents and grandparents, it was it was it was English. But suddenly with the revival or with, the, with the, the arrival of modern Zionism, the idea that we're going to have, we're going to reawaken Hebrew as a language of, of daily culture creates all types of possibilities. And we have to figure out, just like we have to you know, invent uh, a, a, a lexicon for all the words that we don't have, right? You know, people who study halacha know that there's a whole, a whole thesaurus full of words to describe every type of halachic issue. But you couldn't possibly take your car to a mechanic in Hebrew. You couldn't enter a pharmacy and do your business in Hebrew. And we had to create a whole lexicon of modern words that there had never been a need for. So when it comes to writing a modern story, where do you turn to? Many of Agnon's, in the overwhelming majority of cases, had Agnon's stories actually taken place? Have they been historical transcripts of real events, the conversations of real, real people? Certainly all of the stories set in Europe, the stories set in Germany, and very many of the stories even set in Eretz Yisrael in the first Aliyah would not have taken place in Hebrew the dialogue would have been spoken in 
certainly Yiddish in the old world, and even Yiddish in the old city of Jerusalem. So, for example, one of Agnon's most beloved stories is set in the old city of Jerusalem in 1924. It's a story called Tihila. It's a kind of long, short story called Tihila. It's about a very righteous old woman in 1924. She's 104 years old, and she's living in the Yishuv Hayashan, the old settlement, the old Jewish settlement that was centered around Jerusalem's old city. The story itself was published in 1950 after the fall of the old city. It's a kind of um, elegy for that world, which had been lost after the establishment of the state. And, you know, the old city, of course, would not be retaken until after the Six-Day War. But all of the dialogue in that story amongst the people, the denizens, uh, the Jews of the old city, would have been spoken in Yiddish. Agnon renders it to us in his Agnonian Hebrew. But which Agnonian Hebrew should he choose? The contemporary Hebrew of 1950, when the story is written? A kind of recollection of how Hebrew might have been spoken elsewhere in, 19, in 1924? Well, that's no more authentic because that wasn't the language the characters actually would have been speaking. So he kind of creates this Agnonian Hebrew. It's been compared to Dickens's English, which contains all different types of registers with which Dickens can convey all types of things about the world that he's, that he's depicting. A high-class character is going to speak in one way. A pauper in the street is going to speak in, a, in another way. Or I mentioned earlier Mark Twain. Imagine the way Mark Twain depicts the dialogue of the different characters, not just Jim, the, the enslaved uh, African, but even Huck and, and Tom. They don't speak in the way that, that Mark Twain's readers, when the story is published, would have spoken, and certainly not the way we do today. It's a way of kind of conveying that these characters are in a very distinct time and place. So Agnon does this by creating this Agnonic Hebrew. It's almost imagining, had there not been the historic catastrophe, that was the topic that he spoke of at his, at his Nobel Prize speech, the historic catastrophe in which, well, in which Jewish history was interrupted from the destruction of the temple and the dispersion of the Jewish people in the year 70 AD until their return at the end of the, the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. Had there not been this historic catastrophe, had we not been dispersed, had we not been conducting our lives principally in all of these other languages, how could we imagine a kind of, 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 of um, Hebrew that had developed on the uninterrupted spectrum? And he imagined that it would be a Hebrew that, emanated much more directly from rabbinic Hebrew, right? It's as if we're imagining uh, the, the Hebrew of Chazal continued and extended without this 2,000-year blip. Uh, now, of course, it has to be modernized. He needs all types of words. It depends on the story he's writing. He's writing a story that's much more modernistic. It's going to play out in a different way than a story that's that's imagining, you know, European Jewry, but it's a kind of strange thing. We're talking about Hasidim va'anshe ma'aseh, 
the righteous uh, Jews of the 18th, 19th century in Europe. And he puts into their mouth dialogue, which is in some ways hearkening back to the rabbis of the Mishnah. That's, I think, in, in brief, uh, you know, a way to understand what he was doing linguistically.